This is what you're going to look like as God conforms you more and more into his image. We'll become more of these things that we read about in the Beatitudes. We'll become poor in spirit. That is, we'll recognize our need for God. We will be people who mourn. We'll recognize the gap between the world that we live in and the world that God desires uh, for us to live in. We, We will begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those types of things will begin to happen, not because we're going after them directly. I don't think you can approach the Beatitudes as a to-do list. I'm going to become more of these things. I think it's more just as you spend time with the Lord, this is the work that he's doing. This is a preview of what he's going to be doing in your life from now until you die or Jesus comes back, whatever comes first. This is the type of stuff that he's going to be doing in your heart. Uh, This morning, I want to look at the next section. It's familiar to you uh, probably if you've uh, spent time in church before. Uh, You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So two metaphors there, salt and light, both of which apply to us. We'll look at each one. And then I'll see if I can tie it together for us uh, in closing. So salt, Jesus' day was not used the way we use it to uh, season and flavor things. It was used as a preservative. There's no refrigeration. So you put salt on meat to keep it from rotting. That's what they would have heard. They would not have heard you're the spice of life. What they would have heard is you're a preservative. You keep things from rotting. And so for us, that that's the picture for us. Again, not the... Spice of life thing is great. What Jesus is talking about here is that we uh, stem the tide of wickedness. That's part of what we do. We keep society from rotting and from decaying. We live in a fallen world. We have an enemy who's intent on destroying everything he can possibly destroy. We experience the ramifications of sin in every area of our life and our community on a regular basis. Our job as salt is is to try to slow that down. As much as we can. As I was thinking about this, there were kind of two pictures that came into my mind. One on a corporate level and one on a personal or an individual level. Corporately, I was seeing the idea of being salt as a dam. So there's this flood, this river of wickedness that's progressing. And our responsibility as Christians is just is to say no. It's to stop. It kind of has a negative connotation in terms of we're preventing something from happening. Uh, on the personal or the individual side, the picture in my mind was just a conversation between two people. This is this is the the hard conversation you might have with somebody. I'm not sure you're moving in the right direction. I've noticed this. This is not going well. This moves a little beyond the lettuce in your teeth thing to true true sin issues. James five twenty says that uh, encourages us to turn our brothers or sisters from their sin. And there could be, that's what it looks like to be salt. Uh, both of these things, being a dam, being having these types of conversations, uh, those require acts of courage. I think being salt is difficult. I think being light is not so hard. I think it's pretty easy, but the being salt piece, to me, is fairly difficult because it does require courage. When Jesus talks about salt losing its saltiness, he's not talking about our relationship with God, once saved, always saved, eternal security. None of that's in view. What he's talking about is our function. So in his day, if salt is mixed with impurities, it doesn't work. You put it on the meat and the meat still rots. And so it's worthless. And so you get rid of it. And that's what he's saying to us. 
It's not an issue of salvation. It's an issue of function. If we're not fulfilling our function, if we're not stemming this tide of wickedness in our society and the lives of people who we're connected with, then we're worthless in in terms of being salt. It's not that God is going to reject us. It says we're trampled by men. Oftentimes the reason that we are not salty is fear. We compromise. We talked about that last week, this, uh, This temptation to be a chameleon, to kind of fit into whatever the social setting is, to kind of go along, to get along, that type of an attitude, that's not being salty. Normally when when we do that, we keep our mouth shut. Again, it's out of fear. And what Jesus says is the very people who you're trying to please by keeping your mouth shut ultimately will reject you. They're going to say you didn't fulfill your function here. And so that's what he's talking about with salt, losing its saltiness and being trampled by men. Don't hear speaking about your relationship with him or salvation. Hear about function. That's what we're supposed to be here uh, in the world that we live in. We're supposed to function as an agent. Uh, Again, it's a negative. It's keeping something from happening. Many of you uh, probably get the Marietta Daily Journal. You saw that Otis Brumby, who's the publisher of that, died yesterday. And when I think of him, again, whatever you think of his politics, to me, he functioned as Salt. I don't know anything about his relationship with the Lord or any of that, but just reading the paper, he exposed a lot of things that were done in the darkness in our city and county government. That was kind of what he did. That, to me, is salt. He used the platform that he was given to expose things, and that helped uh, slow the tide of corruption in our city and in our county government. That's kind of the picture there of what it looks like to be salt. We're also called the light of the world. Again, to me, light is uh, its an easier one, brings illumination. Uh, Jesus talks about doing good deeds. To me, those are acts of service. They are not favors. A favor and a good deed are not the same thing. Favor means now you owe me. I did something for you, and now you can pay me back. It's not necessarily a lot of grace involved in a favor. We're, we're keeping score on some level. We're keeping score there. I think what Jesus is talking about, if you want to do something that's going to cause people to praise the Father in heaven, it needs to be done from a posture of grace, which says, I'm just doing this for you and you don't deserve it. That's what grace is, good that we don't deserve. Doing those acts of service over time, those are going to cause people to go, what what do you do? Why? Why do you continue to do these types of things? We live in a grace-starved culture, and if you operate from a posture of grace at some point, That's going to cause people to open their eyes and maybe ask you a question or two. Again, we're not talking about favors. We're talking about acts of service from a posture of grace. That's what's going to cause people to praise the Father in heaven instead of just thanking you for what you've done. Uh, I do think there are occasions where these acts of service or these expressions of grace will be costly. God's grace towards us is extravagant. And there are times where he's going to ask you to do something that's going to cost you. You're going to have to write a big check. It's going to cost you a lot of time. It's going to be really inconvenient. I think that does happen. I think normally in the regular course of our day, it's not, they're not, that, it's not that big a deal. Things are not that significant in terms of their impact on us. Some of you shop on Monday. That's your deal. You go and you've got your little list of meals for the week and you're going to the grocery store and you're making chicken piccata. Is that a, is that a thing? That's what you're making tomorrow night. This is what I would, this is an act of grace. All right, God, I'm just going to double batch. Who gets the other one? And maybe it's not someone who just had a baby. Maybe it's not someone who's grieving. Those, those are wonderful. What about if it's someone who there's no reason 
just because. You just thought of them. I can tell you God is not going to put my name on your heart. He knows me well. I'm not eating chicken piccata. But there might be people, he would do that as you're going through the aisle. You ask him, who gets, who gets the other half of this? It'll cost you $8 or whatever it is to double the recipe. And you take it to him. That's an expression, that's, that's grace to me. And that's simple. That doesn't require very much extra. Again, there will be times where what he asks you to do will be massively inconvenient and costly. But that's not... That's not a routine, daily thing. The whole idea of random acts of kindness, that's just a secular version of good deeds before men, which is fine. You can Google random acts of kindness. It'll give you a thousand ideas for things that you can do. And again, we're not doing them with the idea of anybody paying us back. We're not doing it because it makes us feel good. We're not doing it so other people pay it forward. We absolutely don't believe in karma. We're doing it because God is gracious to us. And so we want to be gracious to others. And as we extend grace to them, the hope is that that will then cause them to look up to him as a source of all good things. To me, some of you are 100% wired. that This is you. You are service-oriented people. This is up your alley. I would, then, yes, go for it. Some of you are more, we would say, selfish. You don't tend to think about other people. And for us, people like that, we just need to ask the Lord, God, what does it look like for me to be light? In this setting, same thing with salt for like people like me. Salt is not I'm that doesn't make me comfortable at all. I want everybody to be OK. I don't want to rock the boat. I, none of that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm a people pleaser in a lot of ways in my flesh. That's what I fall into. And so for me to be salt is not comfortable at all. Some of you are kind of on the other end. You're kind of bent towards jerkiness a little bit in your flesh. And this gives you a reason to do it. Well, I'm right. This is what the Bible says. You're wrong. Let's boycott. Let's make a petition. Let's protest. Neither of those is good. We want to do these things salt out of love. Because, again, it can be difficult, these individual conversations or really thinking about what does it look like in the community that I'm in to prevent decay. That can be a difficult thing. We want to do it from a posture of love. I need to not be a sissy. I need to be willing to do that. For some of us who are selfish, we need to be willing to say, what does it look like for me to do good deeds in such a way that's going to cause people to look at the Lord? You get that. Um, Different umbrella. This is not necessarily biblical terminology. I think both salt and light fit under this. So the idea of influence. Influence is your capacity to affect other people's behavior. Your capacity to affect other people's behavior, that is your influence. And being salt and being light, that, that's a way of influence. Those are biblical terms for influencing other people. Being salt, being light. If you hear influence and you think manipulation, that's influence in the flesh. It's, and it's, that's not good. But influence, it's neutral. It's in what direction are we moving people? Are we trying to move people towards the Lord? That's positive influence. Are we trying to manipulate people? That's negative. So... For us, this idea of salt and light can fit under this umbrella of influence. I want to give you a few terms to maybe help you think this through. One is platform. Your platform, that's most likely where God wants you to be salt and light. Wherever you have a platform, that is where you currently have influence, that's most likely where God wants you to be salt and light. Occasionally, he'll call you to a new place, and then you have to build your platform. 
He might call you to a new job. He calls you to a new school. He calls you to a new neighborhood, a new city. Then you've got to kind of start from scratch. You don't have influence in that place. You don't have a platform. But for most of us sitting here, it's not, we're not in new places. We've been where we are for a while. And so then it's just a matter of recognizing this is my platform. It may be my home. It may be my place of business. It may be my field. It may be this, uh, team that I coach. It may be this group of parents. There are any number of things. It's wherever you have influence, that is your platform. That's where you need to be, salt and light. So as I'm thinking, we're talking about salt and light. That's who you are. Those are identity statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's who you are if you're following Jesus. Well, where where do I do that? Where do I salt and light? It's your platform, the place where you already have influence. And influence can be looked at in several different ways. These all overlap. I'm going to break them apart just for the sake of explanation. And neither one, none of these have moral, neither one is better, none are better than the other, I guess, in terms of morality. They all overlap. I think some are more significant than the others. But again, none is better than the rest. One is called um, positional influence. It's tied to the ability to punish, and the ability to reward. It's based on title. It's based on um, role. Uh, when, you're, when you're driving down the interstate and you see a police car, what do you do? Liars. You hit the brakes. That's what all of you do. You take your foot off the gas and you hit the brake. That's positional influence. That guy in the car or girl in the car, I don't know them and they don't know me, but they can give me a ticket. And then what do you do once they're in your rearview mirror? You hit the gas. Positional influence is uh, it's superficial. It affects behavior. It doesn't affect heart. It's the easiest to see. It's the easiest to gain because you can get hired or promoted or you can kind of strong arm your way into positional influence. And it's real. I'm not saying it's negative. It's just superficial. For some of you, uh, you, people work for you. You have positional influence in their life. You might think they're laughing at your jokes because you're funny. Most likely they're laughing at your jokes because you signed their paycheck. That's positional influence. You're affecting their behavior. I was talking to a guy the other day. He left his former job, I think it was 18 or 24 months ago, and he said people who work for him, he continues to see them. I think he said it was every other Friday. They still get together. So for him, he's moved from positional influence to relational influence, which is the second kind. It's much more significant in terms of the change that it brings about in people's lives. Uh, it's based on who you are to someone. It's not automatic. You have to be invited in. When we talk about life-giving relationships, this is what we're talking about. We all need people who influence us and people who we are influencing on this level. This is heart stuff. It does affect not just our behavior, but it affects who we are. It has nothing to do with reward and punishment and everything to do with the fact that I trust you enough to allow you to shape who I am. So I trust you enough to be transparent which is letting you see into me, and vulnerable, which is letting you speak into me. The, the uh, only limitation with relational influence is it is based on relationships, and we can only have a finite number. Most people say between 8 and 20 significant relationships. That's all we can handle, and it's based on introversion, extroversion, social energy, that kind of thing. Most of us, it's, it's 8 to 20, somewhere in there. And you have more than 20 friends, of course, 
but how many people would you say you are either influencing on a significant level or you say would influence or influence you on a significant level? It's probably not more than 20. For most of us, it's probably not more than about 8 or 10. There's just, it's hard, it takes time to develop a relationship to the point that I'm willing to allow, I'm willing to trust you enough to let you shape not just behavior, but really shape my heart and really shape who I am. This is what Jesus had with the 12. And again, it's he didn't have it with the 100. He had it with the 12. There's a, there's a reason that there were 12 disciples, and it's not just because it's a even number. And it's not just because there were 12 tribes of Israel. There's something about that number of people in terms of how many, how many folks we can legitimately engage in on a significant, deep level. This is where you want to get. If I were to ask you, who has relational influence with you? That is, who do you allow to shape you? Most of you, again, pr- could probably list at least three or five off the top of your head pretty quickly. If I said, who are you influencing at this level? That's a trickier question for most of us. And if I said, you can't count your children, then, for, then a lot of us are going, I'm not sure that it's anyone. And we want to be on both sides of that relationship. And with your children as well. We want to be on both sides of that relationship. We want to have people who we are influencing and people who are influencing us. Not for the sake of anything other than this is one of the primary ways God works in our life. One of the main ways God will speak to you and one of the main ways God will shape you is through other people. Through people who love you and love him. And if you don't have these relationships, then you're cutting yourself off from all of these channels or all of these avenues of God's grace. It's not good. And you're cutting other people off from you being a channel of God's grace into their life. And again, I I think I said this, but just to reiterate, it's not automatic. Some of you, every one of you has a mom and every one of you has a dad at, at some point. Everyone had mom and dad, but not every one of you allows your parents to influence you relationally. It's not an automatic just because you have a biological relationship or a relationship at work or in the neighborhood, it's not automatic that you have this level of influence. Again, this is voluntary. You have to choose to invite people in. So don't assume that just because you have the same last name as somebody that you have relational influence with them, or even just because you spend a lot of time with somebody that you have relational influence with them. And again, there's, a, there's an intentional level of saying, okay, I trust you enough to let you in. The last kind, and this is kind of the pinnacle of influence, is called personal influence and it's based on who you are and or what you have done it's tied that's what it's tied to it's based on something intrinsic or inherent in you uh mother Teresa's a picture up there she influenced people who were not in the sisters of charity order of nuns she influenced people who she had no relationship with at all she influenced them because of who she was because she lived this life of faithful sacrificial service for however many years she was able to influence Kings, presidents. Warren Buffett is an investor investment guru. For some of you, you're investors. And if Warren Buffett called you today and said, hey, I think you should go left, many of you would go left. Not because you work for Berkshire Hathaway, not because you have any relationship with him, but because of who he is and what he's done. Some of you play golf, same thing. Roy McElroy shows up on the Marietta Country Club driving range today, and he says, hey, I think you should do this. With Most of you are going to take his advice. 
because of who he is and what he has done. That's personal influence. It has all of the advantages of relational influence in terms of being significant. But it does, it's not limited to the number of relationships you can maintain. It's based on, on you, on your character and on your experience. It takes more time to develop than relational interest, than relational influence because you kind of have to build this thing. It's a resume, for lack of a better word. You kind of have to have this body of work. That's not a good term. You've got to have this body of work in terms of your character and what you've done that makes people say, I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to take her input on this. And that takes time. And that's why for us, it can be so devastating when some of these figures who we revere get knocked down. We realize they've got clay feet. They've sin in some significant ways because we've allowed them. We don't know them personally, but we've allowed them to shape us because of this personal influence piece. And then when when they fall, it affects us as well. And again, if you're the devil and you want to destroy things, what better way to destroy things than to ruin people who have a high degree of personal influence? That doesn't let anybody off the hook. That's just a word for all of us. This is where we want to be. Jesus operated this way as well, you can see he, when he interacted like with the Samaritan woman, he had no prior relationship with her and he didn't have one following. But because of who he was, because of things intrinsic to him, she changed her entire life. You can see it throughout his ministry. When he shows up in a new city, again, he's got, he doesn't have an advanced team necessarily. When he shows up in a city, these guys are strangers who come to him and they're coming to him because they've heard about who he is and they've heard about what he's done and they've made Profound life changes. Zacchaeus, another one, profound life change based on a brief encounter with Jesus. That's where we want to be in terms of influence. It's positional to me. It's the, it's not the worst. It's just the weakest. It's the easiest one for us to grab onto, and it's also the weakest because it just affects behavior. All of you have had a teacher, have had a principal, who've had a boss, and you at, you did what they wanted just because they had authority in your life. And once you weren't under their authority anymore then they didn't have any influence for you. So that to me, it's if you've got it, use it for good, but recognize the limits. Where we want to move towards are this, this idea of relational and personal influence. And so the question for us becomes platform. Where's your platform? If I were to ask you right now, where do you have influence? So think about that. Where do people tend to come to you and ask you stuff? Are there people who tend to share their heart with you? Are there situations, if it's not even people, are there situations? Maybe you're a, a teacher. You've got influence in your classroom, whether you have influence with the students or not. You can affect the atmosphere of that classroom. Some of you are industry leaders. You may have influence in your field. If I were to ask you, where do you have influence? Where could you be salt? Where could you be light? What would you say? Tell me, what would you say? Work. What else? Friends. What else? Family. Where else do you have influence? Think specifically. Yep, small groups. Who has influence at church? No. I'm joking. That wasn't nice. Who else? Where else do you have influence? What? Yoga. Where... Yep, and the people who you minister with. All of those kind of places. You can, yeah, definitely on the Internet if you have connections with people. You want to think that through. 
because you you are salt and you are light. That's not the question. If you're a Christian, you already are those things. It's just, are you worthless salt or not? That's really the question. Are you a light on a on a bush? Are you a light on a uh, stand? Are you a light under a barrel? That's the question. It's not, are you a light? Of course you are. Because you're a Christian, Jesus, the light of the world, lives within you. And the Holy Spirit lives within you. This one who convicts of sin and righteousness and guilt. So you are salt. We are those things. It's whether we're doing them well. And so the question becomes, well, where do I have influence? Ask that question first. That's an easy one. Most of you can probably list, I would say, a minimum of three different spheres where you have influence. It doesn't have to be a large sphere, but I think most of you can come up with three. Then the question becomes, and this becomes a prayer point, what does it look like for me to be salt in this sphere? Is there something that needs to be stemmed? Is there some brokenness? Is there some wickedness? Is there something that's a result of the curse that's kind of creeping in this area where I have influence? I'm a teacher in a classroom, and there's this, just people are bullying each other. I can, I can be salt there. I can stop that as the teacher in some ways. I can say this classroom is going to be a safe place. That's not going to happen in here. Or maybe it's with an individual who you see is moving in a direction that's just not good. You maybe can be salt in that sphere, someone who trusts you. And you can say, listen, this is not, you're going you're gonna to regret this down the road. You're moving in a, you're moving in a direction that's going to lead you away from an abundant life. Where this fear, what does it look like for you to be light there tomorrow? Not in six years. And don't think about grand things. God plants mustard seeds Usually they're small and they grow over time. What would it look like? Where's it? What's an act of grace or an expression of grace in this place where you already are? That's it for most of us is recognizing it's where I already am. That's where you have influence. So begin to be salt and light in those places. And it's just a matter of recognition. And you can take comfort. You say, what is my little thing? How does it even help? How does making somebody dinner help when you read the front page of the paper and all the stuff that's going on? How does that even balance on the scale? And it doesn't. But salt always wins. You put salt on meat, it's, it's not going to rot. And light always wins. You're in the darkness and you cut on, you light a candle, it's going to be light. Around the, the light always wins. And you can take comfort in that. It doesn't matter on the scale if what we're doing seems to compare to what we're up against. We've picked the right side. We're on the Lord's team, and he wins ultimately. Salt and light prevail. And so take comfort in that, and don't weigh what you're doing. Don't allow yourself to believe it's just insignificant or it's just trivial. It's what Bo was sharing earlier. Those things are lies. You be faithful to what God puts in front of you, and you watch how he changes the the places where you're currently working. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to shift Uh, into a different direction here for ministry. So let's just pray for a minute. God, I do pray uh, for every man and woman in this room. God, I thank you that those who are following you, they are salt and they are light. And God, I pray that you would, as they kind of go about the rest of their day, you would be speaking about platform, where do they have influence, whether it's positional, relational, or personal. What does it look like to be salt In that arena, what does it look like to be light? And God, I pray that you would commission us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit this morning.
to recognize the fields that you're sending us to and to work those fields. Not out of some sense of being a slave or a servant, but as sons who've been included in the work of their father. In Jesus' name, amen. I've talked to several people. I'm shifting hard uh, right now. I've talked to several people over the past few weeks who are honestly are devastated. They've had uh, some, they've had a hope. And they've been trusting and asking and believing God to do something. And he's just not, he's just not coming through. He's not changing their circumstances. And these are not trivial um, situations. They're very significant, deep heart type things. And so I asked the uh, elders of our church, I just said, pray. I sent them an email on Thursday and said, y'all just pray and see what God kind of puts in your heart so we can minister into the, those, that area uh, on Sunday. And the way I'm going to set this up, Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so what I want you to do first is say, is, am I Proverbs 13, 12? Is that me? Do I have hope deferred in my heart at this point? And is it making me sick, if you're honest? It, this does not apply to everyone, but I think there's probably, in my mind, there's 12 is the number in my mind, people who it applies to. And I sent this email out to the elders, and I had there were two main themes that came back. One was, honestly, was a word of challenge. It wasn't a rebuke, but it was a strong word of challenge. And the other was a pretty equally strong word of comfort. Uh, Alio was one of our elders, and, and he shared with me this morning kind of this he has kind of a challenging piece. It's not harsh, but it's, uh, I've asked him to share kind of what God put on his heart on that side. And then I'm going to read what one of the elders sent who's not here this morning, which is a word of comfort. So, Elia. I'm going to share a word of uh, exhortation. And uh, it is from... Uh, Galatians uh, 4, starting on on verse uh, 22, it's about knowing where is our inheritance, where do we come from, what has Christ has done for us, so that we don't lose hope, so that we don't uh, operate in despair. So, uh, it starts saying by... uh, I don't know if it can be shown in the in the screen, but from uh, Galatians 4:22, for it is written that Abraham Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, and the other by the free woman. His uh, his son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but the son by the free woman, was born as a result of the promise. And then in verse 28 of the chapter 4, I mean, uh, sorry, verse 30, it says, But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with a free woman's son. And then verse 5, 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand then and do not let uh, 
Stand, stand firm then, and do not let uh, your, uh, yourselves to be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. So uh, we have uh, the case of Ishmael, the other son that was born from the slave woman. And, and he was born because of unbelief and, uh, and hopelessness. They, they thought that the promise of God that they were going to have, uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah were going to have a son, uh, that that was not going to happen. And what the word is saying to us is we have this nature in us uh, of being part of the natural man. But we have a promise that we have been made in the same image of Christ. That we have that hope that we, uh, we need to get rid of that slave uh, pattern that, uh, that is in us. And change to the pattern of, of belief and hope. Because this is what God has done for us. Because Christ set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Uh, For freedom that Christ has freed us. In other words, is his his intention, his will, that, uh, that we break that bondage of the natural man? Is his intention, his desire, his will, his ableness uh, to set us free from that unbelief that causes that hopelessness in us? Uh, This is our inheritance, that, that the church is to be born from the free woman and not from the slave woman. The church is to go from strength to strength, from glory to glory, the church is, is to go from freedom to freedom. Uh, Jesus is saying to us, I don't care where you have that hopelessness and that uh, bondage, but I have set you free because it is for freedom that I have set you free. So this morning, uh, it reminds us of the, what it says in, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that God created man in his own image that he gave them uh, the power to rule over the birds of the air, over the fish of the sea, and over every creeping thing on the earth. And on verse 27, he said, And God created man in his own image, and he gave him dominion over all these things. So it is not that we allow the things in the world to have dominion over us, the circumstances around us to have dominion over us, but we have dominion over them. It is that uh, unbelief that we have to break. It says in, in Romans uh, 8, 2, that because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And his life is a higher life. His power is a stronger power. The people that were in front of the walls of Jericho, they knew that by their own strength, they could not take those walls down. And I don't care if God did it at the sound of the first trumpet or the seventh, but he did it. And this is the hope that we have, that by the supernatural power of God, 
He can overcome all circumstances and break that bondage. So we go from a, uh, having that stronghold in front of us of unbelief to breaking that power of unbelief and, and say it is because of freedom that Christ has set us free. So, uh, so God, Christ in us, is the only hope of glory. Whatever brings you to the, in front of that stronghold of Jericho, do not be afraid. The Lord says, you know, I have created you in the image of my Son. Do not be afraid of your past because... I have forgiven you. I have set you free from the law of sin and death. Do not be afraid of the present because I am with you. He is here with you. He knows where you are. He knows your circumstances. And he's saying to, do, to you today, don't be afraid of the future because I am already there. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He is at the beginning. And at the beginning when he created us. And he is also there at the end where we're going. So this is the, the, the hope that we have. is the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So let us pray. Lord, we just uh, ask that we will come to realize that we have an inheritance, that it doesn't come from the slave woman and the unbelief, but it comes from knowing that we have a promise, that we have a Savior that gave his life for us, and it is for freedom that he has set us free. So I just uh, ask that by your supernatural ability, you will, uh, you will let us stand in front of the walls of Jericho this morning and say, the walls are coming down because all things work together for good. All things work together, says the Lord. All things will work together. I will make all things to work together for your good, says the Lord on this day. In Jesus' name. Kind of the other piece, uh, Romans 5.5 5 says that uh, hope does not disappoint because God has, sh- has poured his love out for us uh, in our hearts by his Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. So kind of the picture there for me is our hope in him has to be based on his love for us. If our hope in what he's doing becomes larger than our understanding of the love that he has for us, then we're setting ourselves up to be devastated. At some point, we're all going to be disappointed. That's life. But if the biggest thing is my hope for him to change my circumstances, that can be devastating versus if the biggest thing is the fact that I know that he loves me. And from that position of recognizing he loves me, then I'm able to hope in him. So I want, to, I want you to close your eyes. I want to read you this. This is from Psalm 3. This is what one of the, um, the elders sent. I'm a shield for you. I bestow my goodness on you. I will be the lifter of your head. When you cry out to me, out to me, I hear you. I understand your fear and see your every tear. You are not alone, my child. I'm with you every step of the way. 
I alone sustain you with my mighty hand. I strengthen the weary, and I give power to the weak. I'm sovereign and all-powerful. Neither death nor life nor anything else can separate you from my love. That which has come upon you will not overtake you, for I am your deliverance. I'm not distant and absent in your life, but I'm closer and more engaged than ever before. Don't give up, my child, for I will never give up on you. I'm always with you. Stand firm and watch the deliverance of the Lord. I came so that you may have abundant life. Take heart. Hold fast to me. I will be the lifter of your head. God, my prayer is that any here today who would say their heart's sick, would be that you would minister your love into those places of their heart. God, that you would renew their hope as Elio uh, was sharing. God, we don't have words for that. We absolutely want to see circumstances change. We don't want to resign ourselves to status quo. We want to believe you to act. And as we're waiting patiently for you to act, God, we don't want to lose heart. We want to remain in this posture where your love, God, I pray, uh, is the dominant reality in our life. God, I pray for those who maybe are struggling this morning that you would ambush them with your love. God, that you would catch them off guard and that your love for them would overcome and overwhelm these feelings of disappointment and desolation. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close this way. We'll have ministry teams up front. I want you to come forward and let us pray for you. We don't have any magic words that are going to make everything all right. But we're going to pray for God to change your circumstances and for him to minister his love into your heart. Uh, I don't want you to be nervous about coming forward. I want you to be bold and I want you to come and think this is the grace that's available for us this morning. And so I want you to take advantage of that. You guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us when we're done. Ministry teams, if y'all can slip up here.